Hello and welcome to the third episode of Shore 2 Sky Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Schuster. First off, I want to take a second to thank those of you who have taken the time to listen to the first two episodes and who are joining me once again today. Today's episode has some extremely useful information regarding your finances, especially for our young professionals out there. Specifically, I'll be discussing how to build a savings account, how much money you should be saving from each paycheck and putting it into that savings account, and how you can best allocate your money to build a diversified and high-yielding savings portfolio. The second important finance topic won't directly make you money like our first topic, but it will save you money in the long run. And that topic is a PSA on calling your credit card company to get a higher credit score. The reason you want to do this is because 30% of your credit score is based off what's called your credit utilization ratio. In other words, the percent of your credit limit that you use each month. The lower this ratio is, the higher your credit score gets, and the lower the rates you're offered get in the future, thus saving you money in the long run. Following our discussion on finance, we'll be moving over to the business side of things, where we'll talk about the importance of differentiating between your dreams and your goals, and how to make decisions in your life based off this differentiation. And our second business category topic of the day will be about the one thing that can make the biggest difference between getting your dream job and not in an interview. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with an in-depth analysis of a workout training plan that has an emphasis on running. While my personal specialty is marathon training because I'm a marathon runner myself, I think it's important to teach young professionals the basics of creating a training plan. And because for many of us, especially those of us who played sports in high school and college, going into the professional world is the first time that a lot of us don't have a coach getting us through every season, making sure that we stay physically fit. For those of you who listened to the first episode of Shortest Sky Learning Podcast and remember the segment titled, Why You Should Sign Up for a Race, I also wrote that article for the same reason. Signing up for a race, whether it be a marathon, a Spartan or a Tough Mudder race, or a triathlon, signing up for a race is a good way to motivate yourself to stay physically fit when for the first time nobody is telling you to do so. So, I think this article on how to create a training plan will be a fantastic compliment for those of you who decided to sign up for something and take your fitness to the next level. Without further ado, let's dive into our first topic, how to build a savings account. There's a lot of different ways to save money. For example, Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary says that every time he considers buying a $4 cup of coffee, he decides to take that money and invest it instead. Fundamentally, there are two ways to build your savings account. You can either make more money or use what you have more wisely. And while future podcasts are going to cover this first method, since there's really a million and one different ways to make more money, this podcast is going to cover the latter one. And because I recently released an article on the shortestguylearning.com website called How to View Any Problem, I think it's appropriate that we ask ourselves how much money we currently have and how much money we want to have. And for those of you starting with $0, When I graduated from college and started my first day of work, I literally had $6 in my pocket, so I know what it's like to start from scratch. And that experience of starting with $6 in my bank account when I started my first day of work in the professional world really taught me that I needed to learn how to budget for the first time because for the first time in my life, and like you guys probably faced when you started work for the first time in your lives or for the first time in your life, you will 
have a salary to work with that's probably much higher than your part-time jobs pay used to be when you were in college or when you were working that summer job or that internship. So after I graduated, I decided to read Ramit Sethi's I Will Teach You to Be Rich book, and I based my initial budget off that book's recommendation. The reason I did that is because Ramit is a very logical guy, and his recommendations are they're pretty practical because they don't force you to put 101% of your earnings into your savings account. Instead, Ramit recommends you put about 5 to 10% into your personal savings and 10% into your retirement savings. So when I say retirement savings, think more so along the lines of your 401k and your Roth IRA, whereas the 5 to 10% in your personal savings is your backup money or the money that you're going to be putting towards your next vacation, etc. Other famous books such as George Clayson's The Richest Man in Babylon recommend putting about 10% towards future savings and another 10% towards debts that need to be paid off. So essentially both book recommendations aren't too far off from each other. The biggest difference from both of those books is that George Clayson puts debts into its own category, whereas Ramit in his book puts debts in the fixed cost category, where he says that 50 to 60% of your paychecks should be allocated towards fixed costs such as rent, utilities, and debts would be included in that. So, while I started out with a sexy-looking spreadsheet to guide my own spending habits, following a piece of paper's numbers religiously just isn't something that resonates with me, and I'm sure that's not something that really resonates with you guys as well. Because for me, some weeks I ended up spending more than others, and I decided to put more or less into my savings account, but overall I was able to find a balanced solution. And like me, everyone needs to realize what motivates them so that they can find their balanced solution. So for me, that's a good challenge or competition because I enjoy putting my money in the stock market rather than a savings account. It just gives me more pleasure. Because of this, I motivate myself to save by saying, if I can put $500 more into my savings account, I'll let myself put, let's say, $300 into my investing account. And it works because within one year, I've been able to stow away about $7,000 in total on top of what I put into my 401k. And I realize that the stock market fluctuates and it's not ideal to take money out of my investing account, but it still works as a rainy day fund outside of my savings if I really do need it. Essentially, it's important to realize what motivates you so that when you start saving from the get-go, you have a solid plan in place that will force you and motivate you to stow away the appropriate amount of money. But ultimately, when it comes to savings, what you should do is save about six months worth of living money. So when you're putting 10% of your money away into your savings account, that 10%, at least when you're starting work as a young professional for the first time, should be going towards your emergency fund. And what I just said was your emergency fund should be able to let you live a normal stress-free life for about six months. So let's say you spend $2,000 on a monthly basis for food, rent, fund money, student debt, etc. That means that in a six-month period of time, 2000 times six months is $12,000 that you should have stowed away as your emergency fund. And to be clear, this money should let you live a stress-free life for those six months, not force you to eat ramen and spam during that time frame. Next, I realize that $12,000 in a savings account sounds impractical, 
because of the measly ROIs that banks provide. This means that you'd be losing a lot of money on lost potential profit, aka opportunity cost. This is why I recommend putting about half of your total savings into a normal savings account and the other half into a higher interest savings account with slightly higher risk that won't penalize you for withdrawing money. And I'll elaborate on this plan in just a second. So if, like I mentioned before, if we're going to use $12,000 as our six-month savings and emergency fund, for example, that means that we want to have $12,000 in total. But that means putting the first 50% of that $12,000 into a normal bank account. Personally, I recommend online banks such as Ally Bank, which as of the time of this recording has a 2% savings account interest rate, and I think it's a 0.1% checking account interest rate. Uh, the reason I recommend those is because they have higher interest rates than normal banks. Uh, a lot of online banks have these kind of interest rates. And actually, um, Robinhood, the app that's traditionally used for investing, has recently opened up the opportunity for people to start a checking and savings account through them, and they're offering 3% interest on your savings account. So I'm not going to recommend putting all of your money into that account because it's the first time that they're even allowing people to use them for checking and savings account services, and I don't really know or think that they're going to be able to stay at a 3% interest rate forever, or at least guarantee that. So... Ally Bank is the one that I recommend because it's what I use and I know it's trustworthy and they have a great history. So essentially, no matter what bank you're using, even if you want to stick with your Chase or your Wells Fargo account, just make sure that you're building up this savings account first. Then, once that first $6,000 is saved, open up a second account with higher interest. So I realize this can be difficult to find because if you go on places like Vanguard's website, they're going to recommend their money market account as an emergency fund. And this account states that it has a 4.97% yield since its 1975 inception. But in the last decade, this fund only has an average of a 0.42% yield. So because of these inconsistent results, I recommend finding something more along the lines of Betterment's safety net goal account. So I'm going to repeat that one more time. That's Betterment's safety net goal account. This account lets you attain higher interest on your money, which does fluctuate with the market a little bit, but it's separated into 40% stocks and 60% bonds. So while there is risk involved with this type of account, the majority of your money will be in low risk bonds that you can, and you can withdraw this money at any time without penalty. And if you need to dip in your emergency fund, now you're going to have options to decide whether or not you want to dip into your savings account or this one, depending on how it's doing. Because if it's up, why not use your investment returns to cover your emergency cost? If it's down, then just use your bank savings account to cover your emergency and wait until the market is doing better to withdraw from your uh, betterment fund for this example. Now, keep in mind that you can lose money on any investment, so I'm not promising this or any investment that I recommend will work, but I personally find the strategy to be the smartest due to its lower risk. Also, note that this fund also does cost 0.625% in every quarter to maintain it or 0.25% per year if you decide to go with Betterment as your second account. So now that we have a pretty good idea of what a good savings account strategy looks like, 
let's take a moment to talk about investing because that's personally something that I consider to be both a great hobby and a great way of saving, especially if you're a long-term saver. But you shouldn't aim at withdrawing from this account very often. Think of it this way. The economy can swing at any time. If you need money because you got laid off in a poor economy, there's also a good chance that your individual stocks are underperforming as well. And you don't want to withdraw that money at its low point. Remember, you want to buy low and sell high, not the opposite. Similarly, if you work for, let's use Google as an example. If you work for Google and all your savings are in Google stocks, if they go out of business, not only do you not have a job, but now you don't have any money stowed away in your investment account because you put all your money in Google stocks. So if they go out of business, you end up screwed. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that Google is going to go out of business anytime soon at all. But what I am saying is don't put all of your eggs into one basket. Put it into a few trustworthy ones that will succeed over time. And for those of you who are numbers guys or gals, if you want a specific percentage to put away, Ramit's rule of thumb is a pretty good one. Put 10% of your money into your personal savings account until you achieve the number that can sustain you for six months of stress-free living. So I think if, if, if $2,000 will sustain you for one month stress-free living, rent, food, fund money, etc., then you want to save $12,000. And once you hit that $12,000 or whatever that number is for you, then you can start taking that 10% and putting it towards maybe a vacation fund or throwing it in your fund money, etc. I'm actually going to get into this topic in the future. The whole point of this article, though, and of what we're talking about right now was to show you guys what a good strategy to build a savings account looks like. And I think that we've done a pretty good job achieving that. So overall, the numbers that you guys are trying to achieve should be stuff or they should be numbers that you're comfortable with and that line up with your goals. But in the end, just don't complain if you don't have the money if you spend it all. Because I think we went over some pretty good strategies today. Uh, and if you do a good job and you follow through and you follow what I just told you guys, or if you make your own plan even, and just make sure that you follow that. Also, a special note to our overachievers making six figures or more, you should be putting a larger percent of your earnings into a savings account. This is because we all have fixed costs. I mean, think about it. Everyone, whether you're making $30,000 or $300,000, has to pay for food and rent. You all have to eat and sleep somewhere. But this also leaves the guy with $300,000, hopefully making a little bit of extra money. And many Americans have fallen into the mindset of living paycheck to paycheck. But if you're making a ton of money, then your accounts should represent that. Maybe that means you can retire earlier or you can accomplish whatever your personal goals will be quicker. All I'm saying is don't let your extra cash flow represent debt. So thanks for listening to this segment. I hope that the information was helpful for you guys. Just make sure that you have a plan in place and I, I'm sure that you guys will succeed. Awesome. So let's move into our next finance topic of the day, which is a PSA to call your credit card company to get a higher credit score. So if you have a credit card, there's good chance that your provider isn't handing out credit limit increases like it's Halloween candy. And I mean, apparently some companies do this for people who have proven they can pay their bills on time. But as a recent college grad, I just haven't had that luxury of experiencing that yet. What I have had to do, though, is call to request my credit limit increases. These are very easily attainable. All you need to do is ask, but they're not necessarily going to give them away. 
As a young professional, making sure you make this call every blue moon is a necessity because if you haven't purchased a car yet, you probably will. Or maybe you're looking to buy a house in the next few years. Or maybe you'd rather buy a new guitar than a new house. Whatever your priorities are, there's a good chance that you'll be making a big purchase at some point in the future. And to do this, you're going to need a good credit score. And part of what contributes to a good credit score is something called your credit utilization ratio. In fact, this ratio contributes 30% of your total credit score. This ratio is calculated by taking the average amount of money that you charge to your credit cards each month and dividing it by your credit limits as follows. Credit utilization ratio as a percentage, if you're not familiar with it, equals total credit card balances, and that's balances with an S, divided by total credit limits. And once again, that's limits with an S. And the reason that balances and limits are pro is because you could have multiple credit card accounts. So if you have a balance of $5,000 in one account and a balance of $5,000 in another account, then you really have $10,000 as your total credit card balances. And then what you're going to do is divide that $10,000 over whatever your credit limits are. So let's say your limits are $10,000 and $20,000. That means you have $30,000 of credit limits. So if you spent $10,000 this month and you have a limit of $30,000, then you're using one-third of your credit limit, which is pretty average, actually. Uh, so $10,000 over $30,000 is 33.33333 indefinitely percentage. So remember, to get this calculation correct, you have to do the math for each credit card account that you have. This means adding up each credit card balance to get your total credit card balance and adding up all your credit card limits to get your total credit limit numbers. And then you take the balances, you divide them by the credit limit numbers, and then you can get a percentage from there. So ideally, your credit utilization ratio will be about 30% or below your credit limit. So if your credit limit is $10,000, you shouldn't have a monthly statement over $3,000 because 3,000 of 10,000 is 30%. While this may seem like an easy task, many people do have trouble staying under this number. Different people have different reasons, but personally, I used to have trouble with this number because I traveled a lot for work. When I traveled for work, I liked to use my credit card for purchases like a rental car, food, hotel, etc. So I could attain more credit card points that I could later use for personal use. The problem that I was having though was that I was traveling one to three times per month and each trip would cost me as much as a thousand dollars or more. Plus I'd have personal expenses each month that I was charging to my cards. So there were a few times where I didn't necessarily stay under the ideal 30% limit. Luckily the solution for this problem is very simple. Every few months it's ideal to call your credit card provider and request a credit limit increase. From my experience the reps are happy to process your request and ask you a few questions so be ready to tell them why you want a credit card limit increase and how much you want your increase to be by. I usually just tell them that I need more credit for work travel, but you could just tell them that you want to buy a home in the next few years, and that should suffice. When they ask you how much you want the limit to go up by, don't say anything absurd, but don't undervalue yourself. If you ask for another $3,000, they might only offer you $1,500, so don't be surprised there. If you want a $3,000 limit increase, then ask for 6000 and maybe you'll end up with 4000 Negotiation is part of life, so use it to your advantage. This is simple, good practice, so 
since these reps don't get paid to argue, uh, as it is, it costs a ton for marketing expenses for them to get a new client for a credit card company to gain new customers. So they really just don't want to lose you. Also, doing this doesn't hurt your limit. I'm not saying to ask every day, but you should be able to justify your limit increase every few months, assuming that you've been paying your credit card debts in time every month. So make sure your limit is equivalent to your worth and also in line with your financial goals. Hope this helps. Well, that wraps up our finance category for the day. So the next category that we're going to be moving on to is the business category. And the first topic that we're going to be discussing could be a mixture, I guess, of both business and motivation categories on the Shortest Guy Learning website. But for today's purposes, let's call it in, well, let's put it in the business category because that's where it is on the website. So this first topic is dreams versus goals. And these are two words that people may interchange at times, but they're fundamentally different. Both words may imply the same objective. And like I just mentioned, you could use them interchangeably at times, but it's important to realize that everyone should take the time to differentiate between what their dreams and what their goals are. If you don't have a list of dreams and or goals, you should make those two lists because before you do anything, it's important to determine why you're doing what you're doing. When times inevitably get tough, you need something to fall on that motivates you regardless of what circumstances you're in. Anyways, your dreams list should consist of the things that you need to do in your life. Your dreams list is the list that you should be prioritizing while your goals list might exist simply to support your dreams list or supplement it with additional goals that you have that are less important to you. For example, one of your dreams could be to become a company CEO. So you create a goal of joining a nonprofit organization with hopes of becoming its president so that you can gain firsthand experience in leading an organization. This goal only exists to support your dream that you have of becoming a CEO. You then have sub-goals in that role, which may include raising the most money the organization has seen in recent years or recruiting more members who can help volunteer for events. Once again, these sub-goals only exist to support the CEO dream. Other types of goals include the things that you want to accomplish in your life, but they're not necessarily the things that you think of on a daily basis or that guide your life's decisions. These goals could include wanting to become a black belt if you ever have the free time in the future and or the money to afford karate lessons. They're things that you want to do, but they're not a crucial part of your identity. A good way to create your dreams and goals list is to write down 100 things that you want to do in your life. You should treat this list like you're a billionaire or a millionaire and that money and feasibility aren't things that matter. This list should encompass literally anything you want to accomplish. The beginning of it should come easily while the latter part of the list should naturally become a bit harder to think of. For example, when I did this exercise, my list included important dreams, that's dreams, such as running a 100-mile ultramarathon, starting a family, and paying my parents back for college tuition. Those are things that I would really want to do on a daily basis, and I think about them very often. So those are dreams for me. They're things that I need to do in my life. But towards the end of my list, the end of my list included things like performing stand-up comedy and persuading Matt Groening to bring back Futurama for more seasons. And while I would love to meet Matt Groening and get him to bring back Futurama, it's not necessarily something that I think about on a daily basis. But maybe in an ideal world, I would have the personal connections to meet him and sales skills to succeed at these goals. I believe anything is possible, and that if I or anyone else worked hard enough, 
they could accomplish this goal or any others on their list. Essentially, in an ideal world, this is one that you should be striving to create for yourself. So make sure that your list represents what your ideal world is. Similarly, I'd like to perform stand-up comedy one day, but I have other priorities to focus on right now, like creating Shortest Guy Learning and marketing it so I can help more people. But that also means that things like performing stand-up comedy and meeting Matt Groening are more goals for me. So I just want to make sure that we're clarifying what a dream versus a goal is. And after you've created this list, create an action plan. Don't try to achieve every single dream or goal at once, or you'll burn out and stress yourself out. Instead, focus on holding yourself accountable to doing three to five, let's say, a quote-unquote action items every day that will help you reach your dreams. There's a book out there called The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy that talks about how repeating small actions over a long period of time can have a massive impact on your life. So act like time is a pressure, but at the same time, don't overthink things. Thinking about your life from a macro perspective can be overwhelming because of the need to accomplish everything today, but that's just going to harm your health and success. So work hard and fast, but be patient. If you need a helping hand to get started, check out the attachment that's on this post on the shortestguylearning.com website. It's an Excel sheet numbered 1 to 100, so it's just the easy steps. But you can start coming up with your list pretty quickly using that attachment. Then it has a top 25 section to help you narrow down your list to the things that matter most to you. I can't paint your future for you, but you can download that spreadsheet to get started. So I hope this was useful for you guys, and check it out if that's something that interests you. Moving on to our second business topic of the day, we're going to be discussing the one thing that you need to do during an interview. And personally, I do want to be clear, I'm not a huge fan of saying the one thing that you need to do to be successful or the three things that you need to do during an interview to be successful. I really don't like those kind of discussions because I think that when people read those kind of lists, they end up trying to fulfill a list when they're trying to accomplish whatever task rather than focus on being themselves. Uh, but I do understand why people title articles that way. Uh, it leaves a cliffhanger that readers can use. And I, I guess I don't feel too guilty stealing it this time because I do think that there's one particular thing that can make anybody extremely successful during an interview. And that one thing that I have found to bring much success in interviewing is very simple. It's the excitement that you bring with you. Literally, the first opportunity that you have to tell the person that you're interviewing with that you're excited, that you're thrilled to have a conversation with them, do it. I recommend saying something along the lines of, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I've been looking forward to talking with you all week, and I'm excited and thrilled to learn more about you and your company from you. And I realize that statement might be a little bit exaggerated, but I've had success with it. The other reason I recommend an exaggerated approach is because if you say something more concise and think your message of quote-unquote excitement to the interviewer is the same, you might not actually be getting your message across. For example, I never took theater in high school, but once when I was in high school, we were asked to act out a scene where we were supposed to act surprised. And when my turn came up, people thought that I sounded too stern rather than surprised. Maybe it's because my voice can be a bit deeper or... Maybe a career in acting just isn't for me. Regardless, I'm not sure if there's a term for thinking you're acting one way, but your emotions are coming across in a different way. The point remains the same. If you're interviewing for a position you really want, 
it can't hurt to pronounce your feelings in a concise and professional manner rather than assuming the interviewer picked up on your enthusiasm. I learned this from an HR representative that helped guide me through his company's interview process once, and I've actually been using that advice ever since. And honestly, I actually work for his company now because I followed his advice. Companies are made up of people, and positivity is contagious. People will be thrilled to hear your excitement, so make sure that you not only start with it, but finish your interview with it. Everything in between comes down to how well you're prepared, and assuming you and another candidate are equally qualified, they're going to choose the person that they want to work with most. And I'm going to give you a hint. They probably want to work with the most enthusiastic candidate. So I hope this helps, and I promise to release more articles on interviewing for my upcoming and recent college grads and young professionals out there reading this or listening to this on the podcast. Just be excited. It's very simple, but makes the biggest difference when you're interviewing. Well, it seems that we've come to our last topic of the day, which is found in the health category on the short2skylearning.com website. And this topic is going to be called the ultimate workout guide. Because as somebody who enjoys training for marathons and ultramarathons in my free time, I take my workout planning very seriously. I'm also a firm believer in building a strong foundation and understanding of what I need to do before I do it, which is why I've been able to build a systematic workout schedule for myself and that I can share with you guys. And like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, many young professionals for the first time don't have a coach or a team that they had as a support group in high school or college anymore to guide them, which is one of the bigger reasons why I put this guide together. My hope is that it makes creating a systematic workout schedule for you guys easier. And I do realize my running goals, my personal running goals, aren't necessarily what everyone else is trying to accomplish. But I do think that this guide will provide you guys with enough information to go home and customize your own workout guide. So ultimately, for me, it all starts by breaking down the body into anatomical pieces and putting them into different groups and then into subgroups. So I'm going to start there for you guys. But before I go into the anatomical segment of this topic, I just want to make one big clarification. To me, being an athlete means that you are physically fit in all aspects of your body. So for me as a runner, I could be a runner, but I might not be an athlete. And I don't know if this is a differentiation that other people agree with or disagree with. But personally, I think that if somebody just spends all their time running, but not doing core workouts or biceps or triceps or leg day or anything else or shoulders, then how can you call yourself a well-rounded athlete? You really can't. You're, you're a runner, which is why I think it's important that no matter what sport you're playing or no matter what your goal is, if you want to be in good physical shape, you should aspire to be an athlete, to be well-rounded, and to make sure that you're treating every body part equally. So to start out, what I do to create a training plan is break down the body into different anatomical pieces like I mentioned before. What I want to do is find out all the muscles in the body that I need to work out and then align those into a workout plan that ensures that I treat every body part equally and that I'm putting everything into my schedule that needs to be there so that I can successfully call myself an athlete. And the way that I do that is, like I said, by dividing the body into different pieces. So for our upper body, what we have is, number one, the core. The core is made up of different muscles, specifically the rectus abdominis, your obliques, your intercostals, and your serratus anterior. Number two, we have biceps. 
Number three, we have deltoids. Number four, we have your lower back. Number five, we have your lats and rhomboids. Number six, we have your pecs or your pectorals. Number seven, your, your traps. And number eight, your triceps. And then moving on, we have your lower body. So your lower body is composed of major muscle groups such as your number one, gastrocnemius and soleus muscles. Number two, your gluteus maximus. Number three, your hamstrings. Number four, your hips. Number five, your plantar fascia. Number six, your quads, which are also differentiated like your core into different muscle groups such as your vastus medialis, your vastus lateralis, your rectus femoris, and your vastus intermedialis. And now I realize that that stuff might not mean a lot to many of you out there, but now that the body is appropriately broken down, we can identify a schedule that lets you work out each muscle group hard, preferably at least hard once per week that is. And as a runner, I also schedule my workouts based off of a running training plan so that everything can fit together smoothly. The conclusion of combining running and weightlifting is a schedule that lets you do a quote-unquote hard day or hard workout day every single day. But every single day, you're working out a different muscle group hard. So here's the schedule that I prefer to follow. And I like to divide every day by morning and afternoon workouts because if you're really training hard for an event, then you might be doing two days. So you don't have to follow this schedule to a T, but if you want to do two days, if you're that kind of person, then you can use this schedule. If not, then you can simplify it because what I try to do is I'll have two hard days every week for your biceps and triceps and two days a week that are dedicated to leg workouts. But if you're satisfied with doing one leg workout per week, then you can cut out the other leg workout. And if you only want to do biceps once a week, then you can cut out the other biceps. And same goes for everything else. I thought that I would show you guys the complex version so that you could simplify it for yourself, though. Also, the asterisk, if you go online, will refer to the vital exercise of the day, while everything else is more so an optional addition that fits into that day of the week. So exercises are online if you look at this article uh, which is also in writing on the shortyskylearning.com website under the health category. The exercises are separated by semicolons. But without further ado, let's get into the daily schedule. Also to note, we're going to be starting our days or our week on Monday. And the reason I'm going to start on Monday is because what I like to do is as a runner, I finish every week with a long run. So my Mondays are more so, I try to stay away from doing any sort of lower body stuff and giving my legs a break. Because if you're training for like a marathon and you ran 20 miles on Sunday, you're probably not going to want to have your hard leg day be on Monday. So the big exercise for Monday is doing a solid, easier, medium core workout, usually about 20 minutes of exercises. Or one thing that I like to recommend is P90X's Abrupper which you can find that on the website or online for free somewhere. The P90X workout videos list their workouts online for free, so you can find that on your own, or I actually posted that on the shortestguylearning.com website as well. You can also circuit train or cross train on Mondays, but the big workout for your Monday alongside doing core is working out your biceps, triceps, and shoulders. Because when we're doing core and you're doing upper body like biceps, triceps, and shoulders, you're staying away from your legs, which need a break. And then on Tuesdays, what we're going to do is we're going to go for an easy run just to get the body going just a little bit. And then we're going to work out our legs, but not very difficult, just an easier medium day for your legs to get them going. So maybe you're going to do 15 minutes of cardio, 15 minutes for your legs, 
But then what you're going to do is, since your legs are probably still recovering from running a lot on Sundays, you'll do a hard chest day so we can stick with upper body. And if you're a runner, I also recommend doing injury prevention exercises. If you're a swimmer, I'm sure you probably have the same for swimming. I consider injury prevention exercises for, for runners specifically to be uh, working at your hip joints. So I recommend doing certain exercises that specifically prevent knee and hip injuries. And I'm sure that swimmers have their own version of this. I'm sure cyclists have their own version of injury prevention exercises uh, and so on for every sport. So I recommend doing that on your Tuesdays because it's not going to kill your legs alongside your easy or medium leg workout and your short run. And working out your chest is also a good opportunity to do on Tuesdays when your lower body's still recovering a little bit. And then on Wednesdays, what we're going to do is we should be pretty much recovered from our long run on Sunday. So what we're going to do is go for a medium long run. It's a good day for cardio and also for working out your core. Then we have Thursday. Thursday is a great day to do a hard day for your legs. So I recommend the P90X leg and back workout for those of you just starting out. It's a really great workout that you can find online as well with the P90X Ab Ripper. And I also posted that workout on the website. And then in the afternoon, if you're a runner, then you can do interval training or hills. You can do circle workout or you can chill in the sauna. So I'll break down this whole schedule in a moment. To the, I'll make the easier version for you guys. This is the more complex one. Moving on to Friday. Friday is another good day to do biceps, triceps, and chest. You can do all three of those in one day because you're going to be taking off from running because you took off on Monday, you worked out, you, you ran on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Now you want to give your legs a break before you're going to do a bit of cardio over the weekend. So it's a great day to do upper body and another good day to do core if, if you want to do that as well. Saturday, you'll have an easier medium run or you can even rest on Saturdays for cardio if you're fatigued still. And then in the afternoon, you can do any sort of injury prevention exercises or cross train. So Saturdays aren't necessarily a, a super hard day. But what is very difficult about your weekend is that Sunday long run. That Sunday long run or cycle or swim, whatever you want to do. Sundays are a great day to just take an hour or two or three and do cardio the whole time. It'll burn calories. If you're trying to lose weight, that's great. If you're trying to train for an event, that's even better. If you're training for a Spartan race, go run five, six, seven, eight, nine miles, depending on the distance that you're trying to, to train for. If you're training for a marathon, run 20 miles. If you're training for a 50K or an ultra marathon that's like 50 miles, you might actually want to do that on Saturday um, because those races are run on Saturdays rather than marathons, which are run on Sundays. So you want to make sure that your body's on an appropriate schedule. And I mean, this whole workout plan is something that you guys can use to customize for yourself. And I'm going to go over it in just a second in more basic terms. So if you just want to do ev work out every body part once a week, then I will go over a training plan that will let you do that. This lets you do everything twice a week. It's a pretty intense schedule if you follow it to a T, uh, which I've done and you end up in you end up in really great shape. But also remember that if you want to achieve your fitness goals, then diet also becomes something that's important. But for now, we're just going to stick with the schedule. And for those of you who just want the easy version, I'm going to go over that right now. And that would essentially include doing cardio on your Sundays. And then so when Monday comes around and you're starting your week, you can do upper body. So biceps, triceps, shoulders. On Tuesday, you can focus on your chest. 
on Wednesday, you can focus on your core. On Thursday, you can focus on working out your legs and doing a hard leg day. On Friday, you can go back to your upper body or fixing anything that you didn't get done earlier in the week. And then on Saturday, you can, that'll be kind of like your variable day in terms of you can decide how fatigued you are and if you want to work out. But usually on Saturdays, I recommend doing a short run or some injury prevention exercises for whatever sports you enjoy doing most. And so now that you guys know what a good workout schedule looks like, what you're going to end up doing is creating the actual workouts themselves. So a workout for me consists of different sets of exercises. So when I perform an exercise, I usually, but not always, perform four sets of each exercise. For example, if I'm going to go to the gym and perform bicep curls or bench, I would do the following. So set one would be easy, maybe 15 pounds, 12 reps per arm. And then set two would be moderate, so 20 pounds, 10 reps per arm. Set three, more moderate, LOL, I guess, 25 pounds, 10 reps per arm. And then finally, your fourth set is your hard set, so 30 pounds and 8 reps per arm. And I like to do four sets per exercise that I do. I think that it gives appropriate time to, I guess, warm up your muscle before getting to something really hard. I think that this four set, this four set schedule, when is pretty good when you're especially starting your workouts and you want to warm up. But otherwise, you can usually just do the second, third, and fourth. So moderate, moderate, hard for your workouts instead, and just take out the easy one once you're warmed up. And what what you're going to do in your workouts essentially is pick. I like to pick four exercises per body part that I'm working out. So I'll pick four bicep exercises and four tricep exercises and do four sets, three to four sets of each exercise when I go to the gym. So at the end of my workout, I've done about 16, yeah, about 15 or 16-ish bicep exercises or sets, and I've done 15 or 16-ish tricep sets. And that right there is a pretty good workout. It should take you about an hour to perform. That would be about 32 sets of exercises for your biceps and triceps. And it should be a pretty good hard day for you guys, honestly. I do realize that it has been pretty difficult to transform this article into podcast format for everybody listening. So I appreciate you if you've been able to stick with me and stick with me through this pretty intense uh workout schedule. I do have a majorly useful document and the article is up like the article is up on the website, but there's also a majorly useful document that I attached to the end of the article online that has numerous exercise links to websites such as bodybuilding.com that list exercises for each body part that you can use to build your own workout. The other reason I kept the links in that article rather than creating my own documentation fully is because the links to websites such as bodybuilding.com include more than just workouts. They include the descriptions and the videos that describe the correct form for each exercise that they offer in their workout plans. Also, I built that document a long time ago, so I hope none of the links are outdated. But regardless, I wanted to post that document because I thought that even if one person could benefit from it, that it would be worth posting. So overall, I think this document is a good database, essentially, of exercises for each body part. And if you combine enough exercises for each body part together, then you'll have created your own workout. 
And I know that once again, there was so much information mentioned in this section, and I hope everyone is able to follow along with it. Let me know if you have any questions regarding this or any of this, and I'd be glad to help you guys, especially if you're training for a marathon or event. That's something that I would love to be a part of and just help you get through that part of your, your training. Well, great. Those were all of the topics that I had for you guys today. So I hope that you enjoyed the episode and were able to take away some valuable information. And before I wrap things up, I would like to remind everyone to take the time to look at their savings account like we talked about earlier. Make sure that you have enough save for your rainy day that will inevitably come. The economy naturally fluctuates, so it's important to make sure that you're equipped for bad situations and know how to build your savings account appropriately. And even if you're fortunate enough to never deal with a rainy day, Make sure that you have your hard-earned money and you treat that hard-earned money with the respect that it deserves by getting it the highest rate of interest that you can get and by diversifying your portfolio. Also, make sure that you save yourself money by calling your credit card company to increase your credit utilization ratio. It's important that you treat your expenditures with care as well, and that means getting the best, a.k.a. the lowest rate of interest that you can get on big purchases like a car or home to save yourself the big bucks. Next up, if you've got a to-do list, scrap it and rewrite your goals and dreams list. It's important to differentiate between these two words so that you can stop wasting your time on medial things and focus on what makes you happy. We talked about putting yourself first in the second Shortest Guy Learning podcast, and one way to do this is by making sure that you spend your time on the things that really matter to you. For those of you with a big interview coming up soon, best of luck to you as well. I hope that you all go out there and crush it. And like I mentioned, it can never hurt to be blunt and show your enthusiasm to your interviewer immediately to start the conversation off on the right foot and finish it on the right foot as well. And lastly, we spent a lot of time talking about it just a few moments ago, but make sure you treat yourself right by treating your body right. I've given you guys a reason to work out by training for an event, and now I've provided you with an in-depth training program. I realized that this plan will be easier to understand if you visit the website, shore2skylearning.com, click on the health tab of the website, and then search for the ultimate workout guide. Everything is much more easily understandable when it's listed out in a writing format. But if you do want more additional help, please feel free to reach out to me at shore2sky at gmail.com. That's S-H-O-R-E, the number two, S-K-Y at gmail.com. I'd love to help anyone training for a race or event do so, but please remember that my specialty is in marathon training, and all my advice in this podcast for every subject is based off personal experience. So I'm not a financial advisor or certified personal trainer. I can actually share with everyone what I do know and would be happy to do so on a one-on-one basis just based off my personal experience. And if you're worried about money, just please don't. Uh, If you contact me for help with any subject, I promise I'm just here to help you. I just want to help people, and that opportunity is all I'm asking for. Ultimately, thank you guys so much once again for taking the time to listen to the show. I appreciate everyone who's listening and wish you the best of luck with your endeavors. As usual, you can find the transcripts for the topics that I discussed in this episode and for past episodes on the shore2skylearning.com website. Once again, that's S-H-O-R-E-T-O-S-K-Y-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G.com. And if you have any topics that you'd like me to cover or want to contact me for any reason, you can do so by directly emailing me at the email I mentioned before, shore2sky at gmail.com, S-H-O-R-E, number two, S-K-Y at gmail.com. 
or by going to the contact me page of the website where your inquiries will be forwarded directly to my Gmail account that I just mentioned. Also, make sure to follow Shore 2 Sky Learning on Twitter at Shore underscore 2, that's T-O, not the number 2, underscore S-K-Y. So the Twitter account is the word Shore, S-H-R-E, underscore T-O, underscore S-K-Y. And thank you guys so much for listening, and have a great rest of your day. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.